0: Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm here at RMIT University in Melbourne, and I'm presenting Talking Design. I'm with Franco Fiorontini, quite a difficult name to pronounce, but welcome to the show, Franco. Thank you, Stephen. Franco or Frank? Franco. Franco, good. We've got that clear. Franco, you've created quite a, an interesting niche for yourself in Melbourne, probably in Australia, that you create very bespoke interiors, and... Um, with your firm f two architecture, retail, hospitality, domestic work it's very bespoke. Is that just by accident or is it just one project tends to attract that type of client?
1: Uh, it's interesting that you that you you focus on the the bespoke part of the practice. It is very active. in fact, I'll describe our work as uh, from the sublime to the ridiculous because we we work at one on one hand, with major large-scale urban renewal and master planning uh, projects, as well as large commercial projects. But in every architect, there's that desire to work the detail and to create and work with artisans. And in many respects, in the residential and bespoke luxury retail uh, work, it's one of the remaining opportunities for architects to actually work directly with an artisan or a very high-quality tradesman. Because most commercial work is ultimately tendered out and really focused on its production and repeatability, as opposed to its ultimate in quality. So the bespoke residential and retail really has uh, been the focus of a lot of our our passion and an outlet for that desire that probably sits deeply in most architects to control a high amount of the detail. It's probably also due to the fact that uh,
0: urban planning, some of the less glossy commercial work isn't really sucked up very quickly by magazines and newspapers. You know, they want the, the luxury angle and they want something quite, you know, seductive in a sense.
1: I think residential... And and luxury items have always had a lot of press because they are personal and most people can relate or aspire to them. Not many people get up in the morning and say, I think I'll buy an office building today or I think I'll um, participate in an urban environment. But most people live in a house. They have aspirations which are uh, at that scale and at that level of achievability, regardless of how small, whether it's a room or a house. So there is a high level of interest there and and therefore probably a a lot of publication at that that scale. We were talking
0: just on our way to the studio, and I think it's a very interesting point before we start looking at some of the work, that there are a lot of extremely creative people out there, including architects, but some, not all, but there are some who just can't deliver without, you know, they just, it's great ideas, but you're very focused on service. And I think that's very commendable. How do you see your role?
1: Uh, look, we do see our role in a number of ways. People come to us because they want an architect, so they, they they want to be directed to a design outcome. We also find, though, the process of engagement with a client is a process of engagement with their mind, and they are intelligent people because they, you know. People don't naturally just come to an architect. They clearly have aspirations for how they want to live and the type of environment they want to live in and how they want to experiment with their own lives. So by engaging in that process, we learn a lot. We learn a lot from the clients, whether their passion is uh, landscape or wine or music, as in the case with, with a particular client. We learn a lot about different aspects of the work or if it's engagement with a certain artist or approach. So through that, we then, I guess, bring our own skill to it, which um, in some respects is, is, is guided by what they might do if they had the skills. But ultimately, the best projects are a collaboration of the minds. I better say, and I think
0: it's important to say, you work very closely with the other F2 in the practice, which is Frank Marioli. And uh, so how does it work between the two of you? Do you take on separate projects, or do you discuss the projects together? How does it work? Um,
1: Most, well, all projects are ultimately um, the responsibility of of Frank Marioldi or myself, uh, depending on the type of project and and how it's found its way to the office. But at the creative stage, the design idea stage, we collaborate on each project. Sometimes it's, it's collaboration in creating the germ of that idea and sometimes it's, if there's already a, a strong idea that comes very easily from one of us, it's, it's acting in the role of critic. But every project has a, a, a collaboration which is a combination of that creativity and, and, and critique. You're almost like brothers, even though you're not
0: brothers, because you study together at Melbourne University in the same year.
1: That's right. And, and we, we actually went to high school together, wow. which is quite, a, quite unusual. Um, and you're right, there's, there's been a very strong personal relationship, which I think has helped our creative output from the point of view of, of, of honesty. And by that, um, what I mean is that very few people, when they collaborate or, or critique work, are brutally honest with what they see because they're concerned and often quite rightly that the recipient isn't really well equipped to take on the criticism as an intellectual piece of critique and not a personal attack. Um, We've been such close friends that um, the criticism is brutal and people who know us as students would leave the room thinking there was going to be a punch-up. Um, in fact, nothing could be further from the truth because the the issue that we're discussing is design. It's not... Um, personalities. Personalities. Franco, you've done some amazing
0: things. One project that recently comes to mind is the Marais at the top of Burke Street in Melbourne. Fabulous um, retail fit-out that really must have been a joy to create?
1: Well the, the the Marais store, I have to say up front, was Frank's responsibility mm-hmm. and he can't be here today um, so he's been the main creative driver behind it but it is a wonderful opportunity to, to, to reintroduce the Emporium to Melbourne, mm-hmm. even though it's on a small scale because Melbourne does have has had a great tradition of... We've had George's George's, yes um, Figgins Diorama and And unfortunately they, they were failed attempts, I guess if you look backwards, but they were always with the aspiration uh, well, George's not initially, but with the aspiration of of creating a desirable and uh, well a healthy luxury product destination in Melbourne, and mm. I guess with the the influx of many now luxury brands directly to Melbourne mm. and to Australia generally, um, this was a fairly brave move by the the client to say, well, We'll create our own mini emporium, and it's not on Collins Street; it's on Burke Street. But of course, Burke Street opposite the Florentino is a there's a great romance to that location, uh, and it's a rediscovered romance, which which was probably there 20, 30 years ago, and mm. and is being reinvigorated. I mean, what happens generally is something great like the Moray opens,
0: and then other great things happen around it, so there's a trickle-down effect, and so people will start to gravitate towards the top of Burke Street again.
1: Oh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a catalyst for for a niche luxury area to develop around that. I mean, there is niche food in that area, um, and there's a lot of residential uh, work going. And, and look, you, you have things like the Windsor, which are, are also, uh, you know, they've become tired, and now, obviously, they're being redeveloped.
0: You've done some other interesting projects. Um, one that comes to mind is the Pole House, which is an iconic—I hate the word iconic—but everyone knows about the Pole House uh, along the Great Ocean Road. For those who don't, I'd be—they're probably not listening—but most people know of this wonderful house that was designed in the late 70s by an engineer.
1: It was um, the Pole House is in Fairhaven, uh, right on the Great Ocean Road. It was designed. Um, it was built between seventy-three and seventy-eight, um, designed by an engineer architect, um, and it, it's it's interesting to use the word iconic because um, it's a it's a certainly a piece of iconic um, uh, social history, and it was an interesting discussion to be had with the client and probably with with uh, some colleagues when. That project came to us. To to what extent you you pay deference to an original, and to what extent you you work with it, because ultimately, the project is probably a greater act of bravado than it was an act of uh, or, of original architecture. It had a number of precedents in uh, decades prior. So when put to the test by, and in fact it was put to the test by uh, Heritage of Victoria, it wasn't ultimately found to be highly significant from an architectural point of view. However, no one would doubt that it's a fantastic act of bravado. And in fact we paid a lot of deference to the original design when we, I guess, did the makeover.
0: But what you did is you restored or reworked the interior of the pole house, which is on this huge pole um, but you also built a separate house for the owner.
1: Yes, the, the, the site has two structures. It's really one house spread over two buildings. So, and it always was. There was always a uh, a, a bedroom and, and car park, garage, wing, on the land, as we would call it, and then a bridge leading to the pole, which had, was a self-contained uh, unit. Uh, in the in the refurbishment a new house has been built on the land and the pole house is effectively a bedroom suite I self-contained guess. to to the house yes uh, but the the reality of of that um structure today is quite different from what we found initially the the plan was quite an inward looking plan it had a central fireplace and and most of the seating and, and the elements really looked looked inward, and the the windows were um, not what you could build today. Uh, it also had some some overlooking issues from neighbours. So our our approach was really quite simple. It was to really maintain the the silhouette of the building, and for most people driving on the Great Ocean Road, it probably doesn't look too too much different how to how they remembered it originally. But in fact, we've um, created essentially uh, movable glass walls facing the, the 180 degree mm-hmm. ocean view. And that has changed dramatically the experience mm-hmm. inside that building. Um, Franco,
0: you've also done a number of interesting houses uh, around Melbourne. Some of them, are, as you said, are very specific to the clients. For instance, one owns a winery. And so, you know, uh, the cellar was very important or fundamental to the design. How do you tend to start a project like that, like the house that I'm referring to for the owners of the winery? Um,
1: That's a house that we we designed in Hawthorne. Um, That's what I mean I, I guess about the meetings of the mines. Really at the early stage you have to spend some time with the clients and understand what makes them tick and how how their lives run on that that constant tug-of-war between the heart and the head that we all have. And their passion was clearly wine, and they wanted their house in the city to also reflect that passion, even though it was detached from the winery. So we had to learn a bit about wine and how they store it, how they like to present it, and that's it's. I guess it means spending time and then doing our own research, mm-hmm. and researching different types of racking, and then saying, "Well, what kind of room do we want?" Because it's this more. It's more. It's more than just a cellar. It's like a dining area cellar. It is. So ultimately, uh, once you get through all the technical issues of what temperature should it be and what humidity, and there are a myriad of technical issues to deal with, and they're all very important to work out. But ultimately, they're not what you experience. That's. The, you know, it's the, it's the science part. Then it's, well, what kind of room do we want to celebrate this? And so arranging of the of racking, uh, an area where um, people can, can meet, share wine, some food, uh, the design of that room was really about the social idea of wine and nothing to do with the technical idea of wine.
0: It's interesting how, I mean, these people obviously they own a winery, wine's very important to them, but there does seem to be a changing trend. Maybe, tell me if I'm wrong, that perhaps, you know, uh, wine areas are becoming more important than home theatres. Are we seeing in the luxury end a a steering away from home theatres, or is that still on the agenda?
1: I'm I'm not sure. Look, um, certainly amongst our clients, the passion ends haven't been home theatre. You know, we've had um, people who are very focused on, on wine, is that example, mm. um, on music. One client, I mean, the, you know, who really, the, he, their life re- revolves largely around uh, audiovisual. But again, it was, it's, it was as an experience. And the sound quality, oral quality, drove mm. uh, that project. Um, for some projects, it's, it's the view or the place. It's celebrating uh, a unique location. The Mm -hmm. pole house is probably an example of that. Um, The home theatre per se, uh, I'm not a a great lover of it because I like cinema. Mm. And I like cinema because... You're with other people. There's a social experience attached to it. And regardless of how good you can make your home theatre... You know, a screen which is 10 metres wide is still a screen which is 10 metres wide. It's pretty unpleasant in a basement, I mean. Well, not all home theatres are in a basement. But that doesn't mean it Mm. couldn't be done. But personally, I don't see it as one of the necessities of life. But some people do. The other thing I was uh, talking to you earlier, Franco, is
0: that you're quite uh, clear about budgets from the start. And I think it's probably something that is worth discussing because most architects and clients have this issue once something's presented and they go, Well, I just can't afford that. It's just not in my league. And you said, look, you you're brutally honest from the start, which I
1: kind of appreciate. Well, ultimately all clients have budgets, some bigger than others. Mm-hmm. And particularly when the budgets are small, you need to be very careful how you're spending the clients money. So ultimately most of our clients really want from us as much architecture as they can afford, mm. and some can afford more than others. That's fine. We, we do think we're brutally honest at the outset. We've built enough to know what things cost. And if, if a client wants this kind of house, we say, well, that's what that kind of house costs. And we can walk mm. through one of those houses with them, whether that's big or small, mm. and say, well, this is where the, the money will be going. And ultimately, uh, it's probably cost us a couple of clients, but we've never had an unhappy client. Mm. And we prefer to have the brutal discussion up front and then never have to have the money discussion again. And then, I mean, you can't promise them the world if it's just not attainable. No. Um, But we we have inherited projects where clearly at some stage through the project there has become a canyon between the expectations, and the budget. And um, that's not a pleasant place to be for a client or an architect. Franco, do you think too many
0: architects uh, get into trouble because they say yes from the
1: start when they
0: know it's not going to be working financially?
1: Look, I, I can't know how other architects work, but ultimately you do have an obligation to to be able to um, work with a a budget and and your design ideas. Um, There is a certain optimism that both clients and architects uh, commence a project with at wanting all this to be achieved for only so much money. But that's all it is. Mm. Optimism is not reality. At the end of the day, then, you have to stand back and say, well, we'd all love this, but let's be realistic, about what this will cost and look we we certainly take an approach where we fully explore options with clients and we say to them okay we're going to put some ideas on the table and some of those are going to be less than your budget some of those are going to be on your budget and some are going to be well in excess of your budget once you've seen the ideas then we can choose (coughs) sorry the other thing, Franco, um,
0: which I think I, I should have mentioned earlier is, um, you got the very prestigious, um, commission of doing the Paul Smith store in Collins Street, you and Frank, and that was quite extraordinary. You know, a big name, Paul Smith, he's actually been on the show, which was a delight, and I've interviewed Paul a couple of times, um... And it was an interesting project, because how does that relationship work? I mean, there are hundreds of architects all around the world that must be dying to work with Sir Paul Smith, actually. Um, so to get that call to work on Paul Smith's first store in Australia must have been quite exhilarating.
1: Um, look, it, it, it is a great... Um, well, it, it, it's flattering when the office is approached um, by new clients... Uh, whether they're Sir Paul Smith or or really any client, um, we had been active in the luxury retail area for some time, though, before that call came. And we had been doing the work of Louis Vuitton for four or five years, uh, exclusively in Australia. Um, And really, a a lot of of that luxury work is similar in approach to our bespoke residential work. Because this store in Collins Street is
0: actually more like a house than a typical store.
1: Yes it's it's, it's like a eclectic house hmm. uh, essentially so and you know the the, the Paul Smith uh, work is very eclectic in many respects it always combines elements of tradition with new ideas so you'll find you know Paul Smith garments which might look like a traditional cut and then have and a bright lining a inside bright lining or uh, a, a new detail or 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 a, or a twist or some abstraction mm-hmm. of of um, some tailoring technique so uh, having a for, for Paul Smith having a, a store which has the comfort and um, uh, elements of furniture and fittings that are like a house is very consistent, mm-hmm. and quite different to the approach that many luxury retailers take. Franco, what are some of the projects you're working on at the moment that are exciting,
0: or are they kind of hush hush?
1: Um, no, we we have a real range of of, um, of projects. Um, we're working on a couple of apartment buildings, uh, one in um, Blackburn and one in Ripon Lee. Uh, We're doing some uh, new retail work for Louis Vuitton, also for uh, Paspoli, the uh, Australian pearl um, company, uh, who are creating a larger presence both in Australia and overseas. Um, We are doing work for a number of the luxury retailers. Uh, We also um, have an office building we're working on in in uh, richmond um, although it's a very quiet time for for uh, commercial tenants mm-hmm. since the, the the gfc so they take a lot longer mm-hmm. to to let uh, we're working on um, some tourism projects um, really a broad range but and and also a number of large um, urban design and urban renewal projects but uh, some of those are really days, and, and probably um, can't be discussed in detail.
0: There was a scheme that I saw recently from you that didn't go ahead. I won't mention where or what it, you know where it was. Pretty extraordinary, um, really quite extraordinary, and it didn't go ahead. How and it was quite a big project. How do you feel when something you know is quite special doesn't get the the approval?
1: Look, you, you always enter every project with all the passion you can bring hoping you'll realize that project. Um, if you can't realize a project, the ideas are still there and sometimes they're appropriate to to a, a different location. Um, all you can do is take the learning from those. And you know, that does occur. I mean, uh, uh, ideas can can migrate from one project to another. Um, we've got a couple of passion projects in the office at the moment, which, um, if realised, will be wonderful, um, and some of them quite sculptural pieces. Um, But you can't take it personally. No. uh, At the end of the day, you you enjoy the making, and you enjoy... You have to find the enjoyment in every project you realise, and that has to satisfy you. The other thing
0: I was going to... Ask you, Franco, and it's you know, a lot of people for years have been talking about retail. The internet's taken the retail component, you know, the retail made it very difficult for retailers and they've lost business. I've always maintained it's about the retail experience, and that few too many retailers actually deliver that experience anymore. And that's what's so lovely about places like the Marais in Burke Street. You actually walk in and it's an experience, whether you buy something or not. It's absolutely, if you go into the lift, it's, uh, I have to describe this because it is quite an extraordinary uh, experience. You go into a lift to the first floor, you press the button and all of a sudden, the whole place lights up with crystals and it's all done with mirrors. So you actually feel like you're in this cave with thousands of crystals around you. It's extraordinary. Now I know that's a big budget lift, but it is an experience that people can enjoy. And why is it that retailers have not putting enough effort into the experience? Because I think, at the end of the day, that's a big component of
1: retailing. Look, I, I certainly agree with you in terms of the attraction of retail being both the purchase and the experience. I mean, and I think, look, online... Is, is probably a great way to for people to competitively buy a known object, but if you're seeking an something which you don 't know it 's a new a new garment or a new piece the the fitting the touch and feel and the theater of the actual buying um, is part of that whole experience um, the same thing was said about art galleries years ago, that, well, you can go online and look at mm. the catalogues. And certainly when, uh, when I worked on the National Gallery redevelopment, a lot of work was put into the introducing computer screens in the, in the, um, uh, on the ground floor so that people could sift through the works. But ultimately, you go to the gallery for the real thing, mm. not for a picture of the real mm. thing. And particularly if, if I'm at the gallery... Why wouldn't you? And I'm 20 feet away from the original. But but you do see... You know, it's like the Looney cartoon of somebody looking at the sunrise on their iPhone. You know, it happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, on that note, Franco, I'd like to
0: say thank you for coming in to talk to me today. And it's been a pleasure. And I've been following your work for a number of years now. And so... Thanks so much. and You're welcome. You've been with um, uh, Stephen Crafty, talking design at RMIT University, and you've been hearing uh, Franco Friantini, uh one of the directors of F2 Architecture. So thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me.